Hello, and welcome to The Scott Mize Show, a podcast focused on health, diet, bodybuilding, and philosophy. I interview experts, doctors, coaches, and N equals one case studies to answer your questions about improving health, achieving your best physique, and making sustainable progress. We'll cover topics from carnivore and ketogenic diets, to bodybuilding, to life philosophy, and everything in between. Enjoy the show. Do you struggle to eat organ meat? Optimal Carnivore was created by carnivores for carnivores. Long-term listeners of the show will know I'm a huge fan of supplementing a carnivore or ketogenic diet with organs. Organs have bioavailable nutrients that you can't find anywhere else. Um, Not everyone finds they have to eat organs on a carnivore or ketogenic diet, but many have found benefits, including myself. And Optimal Carnivore is a great uh, supplement if you are not willing or able to cook organs, you can't stomach them, or if you're traveling um, and it's just something that you can easily take and it's very high quality. Uh, Their organ complex is from grass-fed animals in New Zealand. It includes nine different organs. They also have a beef liver product, a brain nourish product, all of which I've tried and used regularly. Um, Taking six capsules is the same as eating an ounce of raw organ meat from the butcher. So super easy. And you can get 10% off your order and other special deals by going to optimalcarnivore.com slash Scott. That's optimalcarnivore.com slash Scott and go there to help support the show and get your organ supplements. Eugene Trufkin is a returning guest and certified personal trainer, as well as the author of Laws of Aesthetics and the Anti-Factory Farm Shopping Guide. In the last episode with Eugene, we covered everything with grocery labels, myths and lies around that, and how to actually buy high-quality food. Check that episode out if you missed it. Eugene is also the owner of Trufkin Athletics, a business dedicated to helping people interested in attaining six-pack abs, traveling, eating a well-balanced diet, and pursuing an anti-sedentary lifestyle. Finally, he has his own podcast, Eugene Trufkin Radio, which I was recently on and where we had a very interesting conversation, so be sure to check that out. Welcome to the show, Eugene. Yeah, thanks Thanks for having me back on again, Scott. And once again, I know I mentioned this a few times already, I really appreciate you helping me spread the word with my second book, The Anti-Factory Farm One, which was totally like under the radar subject. It was just a passion subject of mine as it was for yours, because I know your your first podcast, Carnivore Cast, was heavily focused on on nutrition, the quality of food, sourcing of food, et cetera, and yep. something that should be so easy to understand and, and uh, attain in the US, but it's become like so difficult and so confusing to even do something as simple as find high quality food uh, yeah. in a country that's supposedly flourishing and abundant in so many resources and technology, you know? Yeah, yeah, of course. And I think you had some fantastic perspectives and brought a lot of interesting data to that. Um, so yeah, it was my pleasure to have you on. And then I saw you know, shortly after you were on Mark Bell's and uh, some others. So yeah, really cool to see you spreading that message. Oh, yeah. And thank you again. And yeah, and the topic, as we, we've discussed kind of shortly before the call, I wanted to um, I wanted to cover like a very simple etiology tree that anyone that's interested in going on an honest health journey can kind of follow. And that way they don't get stuck in symptom management loops of healthcare, you know, like maybe the miraculous situation of curing one symptom 
just for a few years later, another symptom to pop up. And basically, you're spending your entire life running from one symptom to another, or never even getting rid of the initial symptom and just having more and more symptoms pop up as you get older and stuff of that sort. And I guess before we begin, I, I mean, the most important thing is to cover like what, what's wrong. Why even cover this new uh, system of kind of healthcare? You know, like what's wrong with the current uh, system of healthcare, which is heavily focused on symptom management? You know, uh, so let's go. Let's go over the stats first. You know, let's break down the statistics. Uh, obviously, the U.S. is spending trillions on healthcare. The cost per citizen it's about like fourteen thousand uh, per citizen per year in terms of spending uh, the amount of their health problems, and America is probably a the worst they've ever been, you know, with all our, you know, advancements in research and nutrition and in holistic health and in medicine, et cetera, et cetera. It's like, let's just look at the stats because it's a results-driven world, right? And right now, like in America, nine out of 10 American adults are currently metabolically unhealthy, right? 60% of Americans are, I actually think this number is higher, but depending on the source, you're looking at 60 to 65% of Americans are either overweight or obese. So we have about 800,000 Americans dying just from heart attacks alone every single year, every single year. Can you imagine if like the military was losing these kind of like numbers every year in an operation? Yeah. So first, first of all, yeah, first of all, you wouldn't even have a military. Second of all, it would be totally unacceptable, but it's it seems to be kind of like normalized pathology at this point and just very, and these numbers seem to be very acceptable and stuff of that sort. Although they're extremely preventable, as you probably know, through years of research yourself, a lot of the things most people are dying of these days is just minor lifestyle and nutrition changes can go a really long way in preventing. And currently, you know, the state of America, we have about 50% of Americans develop cancer within their lifetime and half of those die from it. Which is a pretty scary statistic because if you look at it and if you go out with your friends, let's say it's you and, and three other friends uh, on the weekend and you guys are sitting at a table, like half of you will get cancer and one of you will die from it, which is a pretty startling statistic. And if you take in consideration the amount of people that are dying from heart attacks every year as well, basically 50% of your friends at that table will either die from a heart attack or cancer within your guys' lifetime, which is a coin toss. You know, you like basically toss a coin. And then that's your chance of getting either uh, dying from cancer or like a heart attack. And then also we have 110,000 Americans dying from type 2 diabetes now every year, which is, I think, so preventable, especially when you kind of change the person that's causing the disease just through very minor education and some lifestyle and nutrition interventions, et cetera, et cetera. And then also, you know, it's, it's debatable how many people died during all the shutdowns and everything. Uh, so I'm not here to debate, you know, the statistics and the numbers on there. But uh, last time I checked, it was close to a million Americans died of COVID, right? But if you look at the details of those numbers, about 850,000 of those million were very overweight, uh, on already a myriad of medical drugs, just very sick already in general. Basically, the sicknesses that pretty much 99% of those people had were the symptoms of poor behavior done through many decades of their life. It's nothing that happens like overnight, of course, and stuff of that sort. So that's like $850,000, uh, $850,000 lives right there. Plus, who knows how many countless billions, if not trillions of dollars saved if we just had a more metabolically healthy country and stuff of that sort. And then we have about 125,000 Americans dying from strokes every year. 
And then also 135,000 Americans dying from properly prescribed medical drugs every single year. So let me, let me kind of rehearse that. Like properly prescribed medical drugs, you have about 135,000 Americans dying every year. And the reason why I'm bringing up some of the, a lot of these numbers is what's also important to consider is the number one reason for personal bankruptcy at the moment is health issues. About 65% of all personal bankruptcies are due to people developing health issues. And when you take into consideration that 9 out of 10 Americans right now are metabolically unhealthy, 9 out of 10 American adults, and 65% of all bankruptcies occur because of medical issues and health issues, you can see a startling statistic starting to rise in terms of what's going to happen in the near future if we don't walk away from a symptom management healthcare approach, which is currently the predominant approach to healthcare, you know? And it's like, maybe you know different, but look how many months and years you have to devote to educating yourself and then also interviewing a lot of different people on your podcast and stuff of that sort. So you may be a total different exception, but just know the reality for at least like 98 plus percent of Americans, it's not the case. All they really know is I get sick, I go to the doctor, I get some drugs, and then I go on my way and stuff of that sort. So my goal today is just to present, uh, it's not for everyone and it's not an easy journey, but for anyone that's interested in going on an honest journey of health and wellness, just at least an easy etiology tree to get A, to the root cause of their issues, and B, know all of the variables that need to be attended to during that journey to appropriate levels of intensity to see a honest and complete resolution of their symptoms. Uh, so for your listeners too, just know I'm not giving any health advice to you. I'm just talking to Scott here. and We're just kind of throwing back uh, ideas back and forth. So of course, see your own health professional and stuff of that sort. But from personal experience, I know from personal experience, I'm sure Scott knows as well, good luck finding a good one these days. <laughs> okay, they're out there, but they're far in between and definitely please do your research and make sure to find one that's very caring and doesn't just give you a quick like two minute uh, you know, Q&A assessment and then uh, gives you a diagnosis and some protocol and sends you on your way and never does any follow-up or, or cares about you and stuff of that sort. So in terms of the etiology tree, I will explain it in the reference point of excessive fat gain, right? Because it's a very common topic and a lot of people can relate to it. But just know that you can use this etiology tree for a myriad of mental and physical disorders as well. You don't have to stick to fat loss, although we're, we're focusing on that subject. So, and once again, Scott, I know you're super smart in this area too. I'd love your feedback. Uh, just so it doesn't turn into a monologue, you're welcome to interrupt anytime because I'm just presenting my presentation that I gave to the Four Corners yeah. Festival here. And okay. it's meant just to be kind of like me talking. So I don't, uh, but I'm happy to kind of go whichever way this conversation takes us, you know? Yeah, you're good. You're so, good. Yeah, I'm just super passionate about uh, about this tree here. So. So yeah, for the average person, I mean, you have to look at it, um, fat gain, right? When you see excess fat gain, you think it's important to realize that fat gain is a symptom, right? It's not like a standalone cause, it's a symptom. And we'll go down the tree and get deeper and deeper in terms of why this symptom arises. But first and foremost, the surface level stuff, it's like, it's a symptom of obviously poor lifestyle and nutritional choices. Poor lifestyle and nutritional choices over long periods of time lead to excess body fat, which leads to uh, like possibly a myriad of other health issues throughout a person's life as well. 
and stuff of that sort. And kind of let's break down some of the important variables to focus on in this category, in this level of the etiology tree, because they are still very important. And once again, I'm not talking to you here, just talking to the average American, because I know you're way ahead in terms of understanding of nutrition, lifestyle variables, using movement as medicine, managing your central nervous system, et cetera, et cetera. But once again, just for the average person, this is totally oblivious to most of them. Yeah. So it's so it's very important when kind of uh, chatting with them to cover these things. So for example, food, we've covered this one together, obviously, uh, a long while back. It's already been three or four years. But just kind of coaching people on all the labels, even the average American on the importance of like what real food is, probably the importance of, you know, concentrating on single ingredient foods, you know, like the steak, the whole food. Uh, the chicken, for example, broccoli, et cetera, instead of having like 80% of your calories from cereal and Pop-Tarts or something of that sort, which sounds like super crazy, but that is predominantly a large percentage of the American diet, just like heavily amounts of processed food and soda and this sort. And then for guys like you and I, even educating them on, um, you know, the, a lot of deception in the labeling claims, you know, like we covered a lot of things with the grass-fed, grass-finished label how, you know, cattle can be grass-fed for eight, you know, eight to 10 months out of the year, put on grain for a few months, and then finished on grass for about a week or so, and still sold as grass-fed and grass-finished, or even the importance of eating meats that are fed a species-specific diet, uh, such things as, you know, a lot of the vegetables sold at uh, grocery stores these days, even if they are certified USDA organic, are hydroponically grown. So they're not even grown in soil. Uh, obviously, in my opinion, there are a few issues there because obviously the earth has gone through billions of years of very complicated evolution to form the soil food web that gives rise to the type of crops we eat, be it wild or domesticated. And then, you know, the importance of staying hydrated and, and drinking water, and preferably filtered water these days, because it's, it's probably not a good idea to drink tap water with the large amounts of uh trace amounts of various synthetic chemicals that are found in the water, et cetera, et cetera. Even like chlorine. A lot of people are like, they forget that's a, that's a very dangerous pesticide, you know, and that's totally in a lot of drinking water and they would drink that as well. So that's important to cover. Obviously, you know, the importance of drinking water, like I mentioned, and the importance of, of, of sleep. And we covered this stuff, obviously, a lot, Scott, and these concepts are easy to understand intellectually, and I think that's where people get held up, too, because they're like, okay, I get it, but there's, like, you're not trying to be a professor here. The actual power and the benefit comes from actually doing this stuff every single day, maybe not every single day, but at least the majority of the week or the majority of the year, you know, so, like, a lot of times uh, I tell people, oh, you know, it's important to sleep roughly you know, eight hours a day, ideally somewhere between 10 p.m. and 6 a.m. because your body repairs physically from 10 p.m. to 2 a.m. and mentally around from 2 a.m. to 6 a.m. And they would go, oh, yeah, I sleep, you know, around those hours or, yeah, I totally get it. But then when you look at their sleeping logs and various other information, they're like one night they're going to sleep at 11, another night they're going to sleep at like 1 a.m. Or maybe let's say ideally they are in bed by 10 p.m., but they're on their phone and they actually fall asleep at like 11 p.m. And then if they're waking up at six, if you average out their weekly schedule, they're losing like seven hours of physical repair time every single week. And then they wonder why they don't recover from their workouts, why they need like five cups of coffee to, to get through the day, why you know that nagging lower back pain doesn't seem to go away. There are a myriad of reasons for 
pain not going away either. But that could be one of the reasons in terms of not getting adequate sleep. And it's very rare to run into someone that actually has good sleeping hygiene. Extremely rare. And once again, I really can't emphasize this enough. These things are super easy to understand, but that's not where the power is, okay? <laughs> okay, it's really just applying these in a cons- on a consistent basis in a world that doesn't necessarily facilitate health-conscious choices, you know? Um, a lot of times, you know, in, in especially American culture, the saying goes, if you're not dying for your job, you're not doing your job, you know? And unfortunately, that's kind of, that became the norm. And I see it's shifting a little bit here and there, you know, but predominantly it's still, uh, you have a lot of people, you know, going off of five hours of sleep a night, just as you know, getting up, um, drinking a bunch of coffee, they're already tired, you know, rushing off to work, et cetera, et cetera. I also feel a huge part of coaching people on an honest journey is really teaching them about centered nervous system management, which is huge, especially in Western culture, which is a very go, go, go type of culture and never having enough me time, not really appreciating just kind of downtime like a lot of other cultures do. You know, they, a lot of cultures take naps in the middle of the day. That would be considered pretty crazy uh, in a lot of uh, corporate environments these days. But what's important to remember is kind of the central nervous system has gone through, you know, for the Homo sapien, about 200,000 years of evolution. And there have been a lot of other human species around that have come and gone, about like 28 plus of them that have come and gone in around 2 million year mark. And all of that time, outside of maybe the last few thousand years, uh, most uh, Homo sapiens were living basically kind of like what you would do on your vacation, you know? They're off hunting, they're in the forest, um, they have like a small tribe of, of, of friends or whatever, they're a small tribe. And what happens is like, for example, like a typical scenario with a hunter-gatherer situation, let's say I'm from like Ukraine, Moldovia area, uh, oh, you'd wake up, you know, you got to go hunting, you maybe hunt like a huge mammoth, obviously, it's very dangerous. There is a stress cortisol spike pretty high. You might lose someone in your tribe hunting this large, dangerous animal, but then you would kill the animal. And basically for a couple of months, there's nothing or a couple of weeks, there's nothing that goes on. You're hanging out in your little environment. You're outside in the ocean. You're eating nothing but wild game, wild fish, wild crops, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you're just enjoying your time outside. You're getting quite quite a bit of sleep. Uh, just have a lot of downtime, and then you go for a hunt again. So basically, the central nervous system. There's a great book on on this called "Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers" by Robert Sapolsky. Uh, great resource for uh, for stress management, et cetera, et cetera. If you want to know a lot of the science behind it, uh, but basically, there's like a spike in stress, pretty heavy, and then a, a lot of long valleys of nothing going on. And then another spike once you go on a hunt or something like that, and then long valleys of nothing going on. But today, unfortunately, you have the worst scenario, especially in Western culture. Uh, you have an abundance of micro stresses followed by macro stresses as well. So let's go over a typical scenario. You know, typical average American is already highly inflamed. You know, uh, average male is around 27% body fat, which is basically obese. They get up on five hours of sleep. They down a couple of bottles of coffee. They get in their car. They get 
on the road, you know, into traffic, it's very stressful actually driving our car on the central nervous system. It takes a lot of energy and focus. They get into a work environment. Uh, you know, last time I read, it's like 84% of Americans don't, don't like their work, you know, for a myriad of reasons. We talked about this a little bit on when you're a guest on my show. A lot of times just the office politics is very obnoxious, you know, or the bureaucracy of a company. And even if uh, even if you are in your field of passion, you enjoy what you're doing, oftentimes what I find is people have a mismatch in terms of how they could express that passion in their work. So the environment doesn't quite match uh, their passion and their ability to express that passion. So an extreme example is like, oh, you're a computer programmer. You want to be working on gaming, you know, but your company is like credit card billing, you know? So obviously the passion is right, but the environment is not the right expression. A lot of people fall into this situation as well. And a lot of people fall into, they're not doing their passion for their work too, which, which is a bad situation too, because inevitably you kind of know you're being fake to yourself. And this causes a lot of distress in your central nervous system and causes a lot of maladaptive behavior over time, which leads to poor lifestyle and nutritional choices, which leads to fat gain in this case. But in other situations, you also have like always one coworker or two that you don't see eye to eye on, you know, for one reason, not that necessarily the coworker is bad or you're bad. It's just a mismatch in terms of how a project needs to be managed or something of that sort. And obviously you're spending eight to 10 hours there. You're actually spending way more time with your coworkers and your boss than you are with your loved ones at home. So if there's a mismatch there, is there some disagreement or something of that sort, that kind of builds up with a lot of micro stresses and tension and possible macro stresses as well, you know? And then possibly you have a boss, let's say you favor nonviolent forms of communication, but all they know, and it's not their fault, it just happens to be what they were born with. All they know is violent forms of communication, you know, very conditional, bossy, uh, like you do this or that's it, it's your last warning and you're out of here or whatever. And then they go through five hours of that for the first half of their day. On lunch, they go out and eat some highly inflammatory food, have some more coffee. They come back into the office. They got five more hours of that disaster. Then they get, go back home. They're stuck in traffic, which is micro stress central. Then they get home. And a lot of people, unfortunately, don't have a good family life at home either, you know, which could cause, once again, macro or micro stresses, usually both, you know, like financial stress emotional stress, et cetera, et cetera. So it's important to educate people on that's not normal, you know, because it's not, and you would want to deviate from that kind of setup and go into more of lifestyle patterns that are more conducive to how the central nervous system has evolved to function. And it's not all the external environment. There's a lot of things that has to change in your internal environment in terms of how you perceive your external environment as well. But that's a big part as well, and it's overlooked so much. And I feel this is so important because if a person is constantly in a fight-or-flight situation, they're just going to run into cycles of constantly burning themselves out in a myriad of different ways. And over a long enough period, they have to form maladaptive behavior to cope with that kind of distress in their life, which will lead them to poor lifestyle and nutritional choice, which leads them not only to fat gain, because remember, you could put anything at the top, depression, anxiety, erectile dysfunction, psychologically induced chronic insomnia, high blood pressure, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, the lists are endless. Higher propensity of cancer because you have your immune system suppressed constantly, et cetera, et cetera. So obviously, I'm just touching on these t 
topics, but this each one of these topics is like a podcast in, of, in and of themselves. But I'm just briefly going over it because they are important variables to attend to when you are interested in going in an honest health and wellness journey, because it has to go way above and beyond just changing your diet and nutrition. I mean, just changing your nutrition and workout plan, you know, where a lot of people still fall into, and that's still a symptom management loop. Because if, um, you know, you're, you're doing all that stuff, you know, working a job you like, not in a family, you, like, you know, another boot camp isn't going to help you, you know, <laughs> uh, lose the weight. It might actually help you lose the weight. But as you know, with general statistics, weight loss programs, close to 90% of people that lose any amount of weight, regain it within three to four years, all of it, plus an extra like five pounds just for the hell of it, you know, uh, as a, as a bonus. So central nervous system management is key and very important. Um, using movement as medicine is important as well. Uh, you know, depending on the the person's goals, of course, that's going to determine what type of workout program they need to be on. Everyone is so different, which is which is important to consider. But, you know, even educating people on like saying, well, you know, sitting at a computer, you know, eight to 10 hours a day isn't how the human body has evolved to function. It's evolved to function to have dynamic movement throughout the day. You know, not only do you get a lot of passive tissue creep, when you sit in fixed positions for prolonged periods of time, or even stand in fixed position for prolonged periods of time, which does increase your chances of injury quite a bit, especially if you work out at night. But you also have like a metabolic slowdown. Like for example, a lot of people that um, you know work in a computer, and I understand this does increase your productivity, but sometimes you get in the zone and you really kind of um, kind of almost blank out to everything around you, but your screen, you know, you're really in this zone typing away, et cetera, et cetera. But it kind of down-regulates your system even more, which even decreases the amount of calories you're born, even below your base metabolism as well when you're in that state, because your visceral tissue relaxes, everything relaxes, and you just kind of zone out and go in this situation, et cetera, et cetera. Not that it doesn't make you productive. It could actually get you to finish projects faster. I'm not saying it doesn't. But I'm just saying there are these costs that you have to consider to productivity as well. Because at the end of the day, you're just, you have a human body and it's been programmed over, you know, hundreds of thousands of years to function a certain way. And the way the world especially is changing these ways, uh, these days at a much faster pace, it's not quite keeping up with the evolution of technology and uh, especially Western so, uh, societal uh, pressures, et cetera, et cetera, with productivity and stuff of that sort. Um, so maybe, maybe telling a person, educating them if they do stick to, you know, continuing to work in the office, et cetera, et cetera, maybe educating them on little things like, Hey, you know, you can, you know, sit maybe with a back support for like two hours and then stand for two hours and then go for a walk on your lunchtime for 20 minutes and then come back and stand for two hours and then finish your day with sitting for two hours and then go home. So you kind of semi-replicate uh, that dynamic movement and distribution of different stresses and loads on your body throughout the day. So no accumulation and tension builds up in any one tissue and no distortion of posture occurs as well, which once again will lead to um, various injuries over prolonged periods of time. And aesthetically too, just to not an ideal posture. You know, no one likes walking around like super hunched over with their head poking out, et cetera, et cetera. Not only does that cause pain and discomfort in the shoulder uh, shoulder complex or maybe the rotator cuffs as well or your neck, but it's also just kind of like not a, not a very confident appearance, let's just say, you know, versus someone that stands very straight and upright, et cetera, et cetera. So 
Um, also, even even little things, uh, educating the person on, uh, you know, getting things like possibly like a GI map test or something to objectively track their digestive health. And such as a full male uh, hormonal blood panel is key too, you know, so at least you have some kind of objective measure. Even if you do it once a year, I understand this is just like a snapshot, you know, but at least it gives you a general idea of where you are and you can kind of make adjustments. And if you're really into it, you can do it multiple times a year and have more clear picture of where you stand in those two areas. Um, so that stuff is obvious and it's covered in health circles or fitness circles into oblivion. You know, every single person has covered these subjects like 10,000 billion times over. And once again, uh, understanding them is not the problem. They're easy to understand. Applying them in a world that doesn't facilitate health conscious choices and making sure your environment facilitates that is really where the key to success is. Having said that too, going on an honest health journey can't end there. It, I mean, it's already a huge upgrade from like you show up to a doctor's office, like here are some pills, go, for sure. It is a huge upgrade, but I found through 17 years of doing this already, helping people along their health journeys, the chance of relapse is still pretty high in terms of whatever they're having, especially with fat gain. If you even get them to master a lot of these things, there's still a pretty high chance of relapse. I can't give an exact number, but I would have to say within a three to four year period, it's around 70%, you know? Now, they will have the tools to possibly lose the weight again. But remember, like I always say, the only fat loss program that works is one where you don't have to do another fat loss program ever again. And what I mean by that is you might have to lose a few pounds here and there for sure, but it's not like you need to lose 40 or 50 pounds, you know? If you find yourself in cyclical patterns of, you know, gaining 30 pounds, losing 30 pounds, gaining 30 pounds, losing 30 pounds, and it seems like you're getting heavier and heavier every decade anyway, if you average out your weight, then, you know, looking a little bit deeper past like that stuff we mentioned is, is going to be key. And let's kind of look into that. So we have fat gain. It's a symptom of poor lifestyle and nutritional choices. But what's, what's that a symptom of? Like, why would people cause self-abuse, you know? Uh, I don't know, like a single child that grows up saying like, oh, I want to be overweight. You know what I mean? Uh, when I, when I kind of grow up as well. So Poor lifestyle and nutritional choices, it's a byproduct and a symptom of, obviously, a belief system that doesn't facilitate health-conscious choices, basically like maladaptive behavior. And what I'm going to dive into next is borrowed from one of my mentors, Paul Cech. And this is coming from two different programs he has, which are amazing. One, two, three, four, Overcoming Obesity, Addiction, and Disease, and also a PPS Lesson 1 on identifying your core values and building your legacy. I forgot the name of that one off the top of my head, but if they search it, they'll be able to find it. It's, it's pretty easy. So what leads to a belief system that doesn't facilitate health conscious choices? And there are predominantly three different categories and a fourth one I included. So the three categories are one of the categories that's usually most always present. And once again, no absolutes, right? Usually most always present is the person has a love-hate relationship present in their life. And this could be in the workplace or at home. Usually for my observation, it's in both places. So a love-hate relationship, a typical one in the household is, let's say you've been married to a person for 10 years. 
And you actually genuinely did love this person in the beginning, and they loved you. But over 10 years, you two kind of drifted apart for one reason or another. And what happens basically at the end of the day is if, if the relationship doesn't end, it could be because of social pressures, you know, financial pressures, maybe you have kids and you don't want to separate because of the kids, et cetera, et cetera. Inevitably, what happens is the person perceives that they can't be their genuine self. So they end up kind of just being an actor in this relationship, like pretending they like the person to keep it going for one reason or another. So they have two, two issues going on. One, they feel they don't have the power to leave. Two, they feel they can't be themselves and be loved for who they are. Because if they express that, then obviously the relationship would end, et cetera, in this situation. So in our conversation here, where does that lead? So that leads to people seeking out food. Because what does food do? Food, it offers you unconditional love. And it offers you power. You can pick it up, eat it whenever you like. It gives you pleasure, accepts you for who you are, doesn't ask any questions, always is there for you, always loves you. And then you can put it down as well. And what does that lead to? You know, that is a form of maladaptive behavior to cope with a love-hate relationship then leads to excess weight gain. Another situation is a love-hate relationship in the workplace. Uh, you know, the person doesn't like their boss, but they need a paycheck. And if they nest in that area, the problem is, is usually with nesting. Sometimes you do have to, you know, get a job to get into another job, which you do like, but you don't like your current job, you know, to use it as a springboard. But the problem where a lot of people run into is they get into a situation they don't want to be in, and then they nest there. And in order to cope with that, because they know at the end of the day, they're being fake to themselves and it's very stressful and draining on the central nervous system just to not be your genuine self, you have to form maladaptive behavior because the only other option in extreme situations is suicide. That's it. And maladaptive behavior is simply a way to avoid suicide in extreme situations, you know, because the person actually still has a genuine love for life but they can't currently tolerate their current life to a degree, various, various degrees, of course. Some people a little bit, some people quite a bit. So another issue is the person usually has a story gap in their life as well. And a story gap, for example, uh, you know, a person, let's say, wants to be um, an artist, but they feel like it's not safe expressing that want because they won't be financially rewarded for their for being an artist. You know, they think like maybe my art isn't good enough or I don't have the business skills to promote my art. And because I I won't be financially rewarded for that, I don't feel safe expressing who I am in this world. Because if I'm not financially rewarded, I'll go homeless and then I'll be in danger and et cetera, which are all valid reasons too. So the person goes, okay, I'll be like a warehouse manager. It's predictable. I got predictable pay. I got this health insurance plan whatever, this matching 401k plan, et cetera, et cetera. And this might provide like some short-term pain relief, you know? But over time, if a person continues to nest in this, they know in the back of their head they're not being true to themselves because they know they would rather be on the beach drawing some pictures or whatever, but now they're in this warehouse and they got to order these boxes and manage these people around. And unfortunately, this also, in a way, creates love-hate relationships too, because over a long enough period of time, because you begin to dread your work, anytime anyone falls behind at work or maybe 
gives you a bad look or something like that, you begin to dread those people as well, you know, because then they're like, oh, now I got to do more of this work. I don't want to do because if this person doesn't do their work, they're always showing up late. Now I'm in trouble. You know what I mean? And it, um, everyone has had this at least once in their life in some kind of, some kind of work workplace form. I have myself as well. And in order to deal with that, if the person nests in that environment, they have to form maladaptive behavior. You have to, because it's intolerable over a long enough period to live that way, which leads to poor lifestyle and nutritional choices, which once again leads to excess weight gain. And then another situation is a sense of emptiness. So sometimes you do have, like, let's say, a person that's very successful in the external world. But they reach 50 and then they find out, you know, the, the ladder was leaned against the wrong building all along. And although they were climbing very high and very fast and got to the top of the ladder, it was just on the wrong building. So they begin to form this sense of emptiness. So that's just one example. It could happen in an earlier age as well. And to deal with that sense of emptiness, once again, you could fall into easy patterns of using food as medicine, you know, and then using the wrong type of foods, et cetera, et cetera. And then poor lifestyle and nutritional choices, which leads to fat gain again. And the last one in this in this list, which I which I kind of put in here, is a is a person's surroundings need to be attended to as well. So when a person goes on an honest health journey, now again, no absolutes. I'm not giving anyone anyone advice. I'm just talking to Scott here. But when a person goes on an honest health journey, they must always have to change the environment they're in when they started that health program. So let's say with fat loss. Let's say you started in company A and you finished a successful fat loss program. You ideally would need to either leave that company or leave that field altogether or possibly move states. You can't continue to stay in the same environment where a lot of those pathologies began to arise because there's something in the environment also that led to those issues. So as an extreme example, imagine like a, a person finishes a drug rehab program. I think I brought this up with you already. And let's say they, they finished it successfully, but they go back to the neighborhood with the druggy friends, you know, the drug dealer, no job probably also, you know, like low self-esteem because of that, of course, they're going to return back to using drugs. And I found this to be the case with fat loss clients as well. The ones that create lasting change as one of the things they do, they must always change their job or move out of state. Sometimes they got to change family, family members and friends too. It's tough to do. And like I said, all this stuff isn't easy, you know? But if you're interested in going on an honest health journey, there are things that have to be attended to, and they're going to vary from person to person. There are no algorithms that are just here, and it works for everyone. You have to have a lot of intuition and trust in your spirit and soul, too, because oftentimes it's giving you the right answers, but because of external circumstances and, you know, as Wolinsky would say, different ways we lie to ourselves, we continue to dampen that voice down and kind of do what's more like intellectually smart thing to do or whatever. Uh, yeah, which- I think one one thing you hit on there that the, the roots of culture and um, like our social lives are so deep. And I think that's part of what makes change so hard for so many people. Yes, exactly. And especially with, um, now this could happen anywhere uh, in any occupation, uh, uh, but a lot of times a lot of corporate offices, just the way they function, is, is, it's not very conducive to human health. It's tough to really optimize your mental and physical health in those environments. So it's something to consider. Because a lot of times I feel a lot of people don't um, 
calculate the the um the cost of their paycheck you know the direct and indirect cost of that paycheck and i feel that's so important and i feel that's totally oblivious to especially college students they just you know they're finishing at 22 20, 21 sometimes 23 and they're just happy to get a job you know what i mean especially if it's a high paying job but i feel it's so important to really sit down and go like what am i giving up for this paycheck and also sometimes you don't even need to give up a paycheck you maybe just need to be more creative and you can still make the same paycheck but not give up on your core values and who you are deep down inside as well you know because it's really important to set those healthy boundaries because at the end of the day it's like i don't really of course everyone has different goals but at the end of the day everyone has a mind and a body right and if those start failing all those other goals fall apart like what are you going to do what are you going to accomplish if you have major depression or some serious physical Ill illness you know like you can, all of a sudden you can't do anything your mental and physical health acts as like a ceiling to your overall capabilities and your happiness in life so it, let's say you're really flourishing at work you're like sought after everyone loves you but your health is like a C or a D, your life quality is like a C or a D. You might not admit to it because a lot of people, unfortunately, too, Scott, I found, normalize their pathology. They've been living that way for so long, and the guy next to them happens to be so much sicker, they really think they're doing fine. But obviously, it's, it's not the case with those stats that I just simply read off to you, um, especially during the whole pandemic thing when a lot of the news anchors were like, there are healthy people dying from this virus. I'm like, dude, what kind of healthy people are you talking about? Nine out of 10 Americans right now are metabolically sick, you know? There might be like one rare occasion here and there for sure, but uh, I'm just speaking based off of just basic statistics, you know? Um, once again, no absolutes, of course. So uh, so then you would have to go like, what, what leads people into love-hate relationships, you know, jobs they don't like, et cetera, et cetera, into the wrong surroundings? And this is still part of Paul Chuck's work and is basically a disconnect in their core values. And this is presuming a person even knows what their core values are. I've done this exercise with many of my 40 or 50 year old clients uh, in terms of identifying like, what do they like? What don't they like? You know, et cetera, et cetera. And you'll be surprised that uh, even very successful ones, the ones that are very successful in the external world, it's like, oh, I have never done this before. No one ever asked me what I wanted to do, you know? Uh, in terms of like, oh, like, what do you like your week to look? You know, like, what do you like your body to look? Even little things like what kind of music do you like to look to? What kind of people do you like being around? Um, what kind of clothing do you like to wear? You know, uh, how much time off do you want? Do you like working remote or do you like working in person? You know, and identifying these core values and being very crystal clear and honest about them is key. Because the wider the gap between what your core values are, presuming you do know them, and how your actual week looks, the more maladaptive behavior you're going to have to form, no matter what. Because there's a disconnect between what you want and what you want to be and who you are actually acting like being in the real world, in the external world. So within the wider the gap, the more maladaptive behavior that has to form in extreme situations like drug abuse and stuff of that sort, you know, even food abuse could be pretty extreme at times in some situations as well. So then you have to go into uh, Walensky's work. And I, I love his work. It's not for everyone. It's in quantum psychology. Um, I believe he is truly like an honest master. If you're really interested in 
in going on an honest health journey to really solidify the pieces of your journey. Uh, I feel the work is great, especially for people I found that have been on medical drugs for so many years, have done X amount of boot camps and nutrition programs, et cetera, et cetera, but still find themselves regaining their weight or just not able to lose weight altogether. Like they're getting the right information in the situations like they know they don't want to be overweight. They know they're causing their own obesity, but they can't stop themselves. You know, in situations, especially that way, when the information especially is already there and they know what to do, but they just can't stop themselves from doing the right thing, you know, uh, from doing the wrong thing, etc. So we'll have to, before we go into that work, we'll have to just revisit the central nervous system just in a little bit more detail because then it kind of ties all back in. Uh, but basically in short, you know, like what, what is the only sole purpose of the central nervous system? It's very simple. Is just to get you to survive better. And if you meditate on it, it always goes back to survival. Like, why do I need to get good grades in college? Oh, so I can get a good job. Why do I need to get a good job? Oh, so I can earn a living and get an apartment or a house and start a family. Oh, why do I need to do that? Oh, so I can survive better, you know? Or even spiritual paths. Why do I need to become enlightened? Oh, so I can navigate the world, external world better and be more calm and be more relaxed and do this. Why do you need to? Oh, so you can survive better, you know? Or why do I need to have a tribe, be liked by people, et cetera, et cetera? Oh, so, so you could survive better. And that's it. So everything you do is basically just for survival. Even something as selfless as having kids, quote unquote, selfless. I say that lightly because it's selfish as well. Because if you chat to people on why do you have kids, they're like, oh, I want to spread my name or I want someone to take care of me when I'm older. Or, it always goes back to you and it always goes back to survival, you know, and stuff of that sort. And another, so that's the key. And it's very important to remember this because a lot of times people think they have free will oftentimes. But if you really think about it, it's like you have free will in the sense that I'm going to put you in this box and everywhere, you can move anywhere you want in this box, but only in this box, you know, so you're free to that extent. And it's, it's the same thing with the central nervous system. A lot of times we look at animals and they're like, ah, you know, they're not high thinkers like us, et cetera, et cetera. But really we're under this kind of like puppet master of the central nervous system, just getting us to survive better. And a lot of the things we do already happen before even our conscious awareness arises. Like you take an action, for example, and you only consciously perceive that action after the action has happened, but the action has already happened, you know? Uh, anyways. That's digressing to like another uh, another topic. I don't want to lose the audience here. But another another thing the central nervous system does is simplify chaos in the sense that I'm getting this from my professor at University of California, Irvine, Dr. Donald Hoffman, which has amazing work in the interface theory. And he's been getting on, actually, I'm really happy for him because he's been getting on a lot of huge podcasts. Like he was on Lex, Fre Lex Friedman's podcast recently. And I'm so happy that he got his word out about this work because it was kind of not as well known when I was still studying under him way back in like 2008 and 2007, around those years. And another thing, another way the central nervous system gets you to survive is simply by dumbing everything down. So for example, um, everyone knows the word icon on the desktop, you know, it's like blue with a W, but as you know, being a programmer, um, that's not how the program looks. If you look at the HTML file, it's kind of like just a bunch of stuff you might understand, actually, coincidentally, but I don't understand. Like, I wouldn't be able to write a paper 
if I had to do it through the HTML file instead of the simplified interface that the word software is. It's basically like a dumbed down version of reality of how that software looks. So I can kind of play around with it, like, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So what? Why? So I can write up papers. I can make a living. So why? I can survive better. You know, so it always goes back to survival. Even this notepad here, without my central nervous system looking at it, is just like trillions of atoms. Incomprehensible. I wouldn't be able to interact with it and I wouldn't be able to survive. So it really just through like various levels of abstraction and emitting billions of stimuli, it dumbs it down for me to be able to basically comprehend what's going on here. And the amount of information that the human mind can intake is actually extremely small. Uh, for example, you could look at like a bush. You could only see the fine details of a single leaf, but the whole bush becomes blurry. Or you can see uh, semi-details of the whole entire bush. You can never see the fine details of even every single leaf in the whole entire bush all at the same time. Because the brain would like overload and basically you wouldn't be able to, you wouldn't be able to function, you know, and stuff. But it does this everywhere. And everything you see is already, everything you see and are able to interact with. A, it doesn't represent reality in any way. Reality looks completely different from that. And B, it's like extremely dumbed down, you know, extremely extreme. Maybe seeing like maybe, maybe 1%. I don't know the number, but maybe 1% of what's actually out there. But to summarize it in short, and once again, your listeners can email me. I could just send them a more comprehensive breakdown of this. I have like a PDF file of it. Uh, basically, like another way your central nervous system gets you to survive by creating a personality for you. And it does this during the ages of five to 12 months. Because before then, the child is like in a state of essence, you know, it thinks it's one with the entire universe. And then you create this conscious perception of being separate as a separate entity in the universe. And it does this for you. And it does this for you in one way by creating your biggest fear. And there are nine different personality types. And every personality type has a big, like their biggest fear. So in this situation, let's say you got like a type two and their biggest fear is I am worthless. So anytime, you know, you get triggered, one exercise your listeners can do is just simply ask, like, what's so bad about that? And then come up with an answer and then ask, what's so bad about that? And keep asking that and you will come back to an end state. And that end state will indicate your greatest fear. And especially when you get triggered, you'll see it'll come up again and again. But in this situation, the person's greatest fear is I am worthless. They've come to this conclusion, but it's a false conclusion. And they spend their entire life proving they are worthy by trying to avoid their greatest fear of being worthless. But the problem is, is the conclusion of I am worthless is a false conclusion. It's not a correct conclusion. So they spend their whole entire life, entire personality, based off a false assumption. And you can't, once again, come up with the right answer. So trying to seek worth, they get into the wrong relationships. They get into the wrong occupations, which over time, as we mentioned, lead to maladaptive behaviors, which lead to excess fat gain, drug use, depression, anxiety, whatever. I'm going to cut it short there. I mean, I'm pretty sure anyone with a decent IQ could already understand where this is going. That's just the flow. Does it work for everyone? It doesn't work for freaking everyone. But I think it's way better system than what's currently out there for the most part. There might be better systems out there, et cetera, et cetera, than what most people are doing. 98% of Americans are like, here's a drug. Then the other 2% also get lost in the weeds of symptom management. 
it's easy to get lost in there. But this is a good way to really get to the root cause and really solve it from the bottom up. Yeah, I think it's it's fantastic. And one thing that I I was thinking about along the way is um, like a lot of the examples you give are at least the story you were telling of like the person going to work and waking up stressed, coming back stressed. That is um, probably the most common example and what most people are dealing with. But even you and I, who are very health conscious and very, um, you know, uh, aware of these things and also enforcing good habits, very, um, very conscious of, of what's going on, we can even relate to some of these aspects, you know, not only in our past lives, but currently. There are, there are mm-hmm. certain things, you know, you and I are creating um, a, a double self in, in some instances, even in our our lives now that we have set up to, to better promote health habits. Um, and so I think everyone, wherever you are in your health journey, can use aspects of this and relate to aspects of this. It's not only the sickest and most stressed mm-hmm. and most desperate people. Sure, those people need it the most, but um, I think everyone uh, is on sort of a spectrum and can relate to pieces of this as well. Yes. And Scott, once again, super grateful that you had me on uh, for the second time. I really appreciate it. So, My pleasure. Thank you, Eugene. And um, yeah, for folks who want to follow along and learn more about you, um, where are the best places to find you? I talked about some in the intro, um, but let's summarize them all here and also have uh, links to everything in the show notes too. Yeah, thank you. I have, uh, you know, my website, truffkinathletics.com. And then also I'm on Instagram. Kind of don't want to be on any of these things, but being a remote coach, you got to do a little bit of what you don't want to, you know? So Instagram, unfortunately, TikTok, ashamed to say it too. And then I have my, I actually really like my YouTube channel because I get to interview guys like you. And I feel just learning from other people like you and just really fast tracks my process too, you know, um, and stuff of that sort. So um, yeah, just happy to share this info for anyone that's interested in going on, maybe not an easy journey. It's not easy to make these changes, you know, but, um, at least the answers are there. So when you're not confused about what really needs to be done, then it's really up to you to decide if you're ready to, to really, really change. Yeah. And, and what was your professor's name? I'll add the link to his interview on Lex's podcast too. Yeah, I would big um, big thank you for a lot of people that laid the groundwork for this tree. You know, I, there are different pieces in, that I put together from other people. So Paul Check, Dr. Donald Hoffman, Richard Dawkins played a huge role. You know, personally and in inspiring some of the, yeah. some of these ideas. And like a huge thank you to um, Stefan Walensky. I'm a really big fan of his work. I feel he does really amazing work. I kind of like don't like the guy because it's like impossible to contact him. You know, he doesn't have any contact info anywhere and he has a (laughs) tremendous amount of free books on his website, his books on his website. So he's totally not into it for the profit and stuff like that. He's just wants to share. So I'm trying to do the same thing. Uh, Anyone wants it? Like, here's the info, you know? Um, And yeah, I mean, you don't have to stay lost. It's not easy, but there's like at least a roadmap that will work. I feel for the majority of, of people, you know? When they're yeah, ready for it. So. And folks, if folks want help along that journey, Eugene is a fantastic coach and he's certainly the best equipped to help you through anything you're going through and anything you want help with along those lines. So thank you guys. And thanks for ever jumped in on the show as well. So yeah, I hope this helps. You.
Thank you for listening to the show. You can find The Scott My Show on Instagram, YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter. Please leave a comment, like, review, or share the podcast with your friends or followers. It helps more people find the show.